Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, assault, domestic violence, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By the early 1970s, the investigation into the murder of Valerie Percy had gone cold. Details of the crime had already begun to fade from public memory. Police had conducted nearly 14,000 interviews and compiled over 1,300 leads, but had made no arrests. It seemed like there was no hope of finding more answers. That is until an investigative journalist from the Chicago Sun-Times named Art Patak took an interest in Valerie's story. Art spent the previous 18 months tracking a mafia-backed crime syndicate that was notorious for targeting wealthy neighborhoods across America. After he heard Valerie's story, he formed a theory. The answer to Valerie's murder was hidden somewhere deep within the world of Chicago underground crime. Of course, proving this theory was far more difficult than forming it. Art tried interviewing mob members about the case, but many refused to talk. By the early months of 1972, Art was just about to give up his theory, but then the phone rang. It was one of the associates of the crime syndicate Art had previously met while reporting on the mafia. He told Art he was dying and that one of his last wishes was to reveal something about the Valerie Percy case. Art scrambled for a pen and paper. Finally, six years after the murder, the suspected killer had a name. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the murder of Valerie Percy. Last time, we covered the night Valerie was attacked by a stranger who'd broken into her family's estate. This time, we'll follow two separate journeys to uncover the truth. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Spectrum Business works with small businesses nationwide, so we know that running your own business means doing it all. Marketing, sales, inventory, customer service, and more. Spectrum One for Business helps you keep it all connected for just $49.99 a month. Get fast, reliable internet, advanced Wi-Fi with security shield, and a free mobile line for one low price. Stay connected and do it all with Spectrum One for Business. Only $49.99 a month. Go to spectrum.com slash business to learn more. Restrictions apply. Services not available in all areas. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For years, Valerie Percy's murder confounded investigators, from the FBI to the town of Kenilworth's police. The 21-year-old daughter of a prominent millionaire and politician was universally adored. The idea that she'd ever made an enemy, especially one with a deadly grudge, was inconceivable. Yet the nature of the crime was so brutal, it seemed personal. Investigators were stumped, but it was exactly the kind of puzzle that drew the attention of a seasoned crime reporter. Art Patek certainly wasn't the first reporter to take an interest in the Percy case, but he was one of the most qualified. Art had gained a reputation as dominating his beat on organized crime during his many years at the Chicago Sun-Times. He was a relentless truth-finder. Many thought the 47-year-old investigative journalist might actually be able to solve the murder. And he was certain there was more to Valerie's story than the police were seeing. He just needed to convince his editor. Let me get this straight. You think a robber did this to her? I'm not talking about a gang of bumbling bandits here. These are career criminals. They were hitting the wealthiest homes across this country, hauling millions. But nothing was taken from the Percy home? Valerie wakes up before they could get the chance. They go to shut her up, but the stepmom walks in. Why kill her if all they wanted was cash? I'm no career criminal, but I can think of some easier ways to bag some cash that don't involve going up the stairs. A few of these guys weren't just known for thieving. They had nasty records, violent ones. This one guy, Frederick Malchow, he and a buddy were picked up in Pennsylvania one year after the Percy killing. The two of them raped a woman in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the state. And she was far from their first victim. You want me to send you to Pennsylvania to get an interview with Malchow? Well, that would be ideal. Only Malchow is not really available for comment. See, both he and his partner made a break for it from the courthouse. Police ended up finding Malchow at the bottom of a railway trestle. Guy must have been walking the tracks and jumped to avoid a train. It's a shame, too, because if he didn't kill the Percy girl himself, he almost certainly knows who did. So then where do you want to take the story next? I've asked around for interviews with every known associated gang member that's been locked up. Most of them don't want to talk, but I left my number should any of them get a change of heart. At this point, I'm waiting for the story to come to me. Hart got the break he'd been waiting for in the early months of 1972. Leo Rugendorf was an alleged loan shark in Chicago who worked with a nationwide burglary ring. Art was familiar with Leo after meeting him in his early days on the crime beat. Back then, Leo wanted nothing to do with the reporter. He knew ratting on the mafia was a death wish. Now the 58-year-old was dying from diabetes and heart disease and had something he needed to get off his chest. He said he knew who killed Valerie Percy. He called Art and asked him to come to his home for an interview. When the reporter arrived at the ex-mobster's home, he was surprised. Leo was far from the man he remembered. His illness had ravaged his once intimidating frame, leaving him frail and slow-moving. 
only a shadow of the towering figure he used to be. Art couldn't help but feel a twinge of pity for the ex-operative as he unsteadily took a seat across from him. Yeah, I, I know who killed the Percy girl, all right. It was the same guy who squealed on me back in the day. Francis Hoheimer. And Mr. Hoheimer contacted you in the fall of 1966. That's right. Though Francis was the kind of guy who liked to think he worked alone. <clears throat> I'm glad he's rotting in his cell. He's in prison on rape and robbery charges, is that right? So I hear. Was he known for this sort of violence? I've seen him do worse. That guy was a loose cannon. What makes you think he killed Valerie? Hoheimer came to me shortly after the murder. By that point, the girl's story was all over the airwaves. He said he and two of the other guys made it into the joint through the back door. He said, They'll get me for the Percy murder. The girl woke up and I hit her on the top of the head with a pistol. Hell, I think he was proud of it, given how much people were talking about the murder. After that day, he bragged about it whenever he could. Is there anyone who can back you up on this? Yeah. Wayne Hoheimer. The brother. And good luck tracking him down. He was no mobster. But he has a record of his own and he isn't real keen on talking to cops. He might talk with you, though. I bet he'll tell you his brother is the man you're looking for. And have you shared this information with the police? I'm not big on cops myself. But I figure I got nothing to lose at this stage. Put me in front of a judge if you want. Art began the search for Francis's brother, Wayne. Leo hadn't been lying when he said the man might be difficult to track down. After over a year of digging and reaching out to his friends and old co-workers, Wayne finally contacted Art to go on record in November of 1973. He did it all right. I ran into him the day after the murder at the bar. He was nervous and uptight. Then he said he had to off a girl. And how did you respond? I asked him why, and he said it was because the girl made a lot of noise and they got into a fight. I asked him, what score are you talking about? And he said it's all in the newspapers and on the radio today. He was talking about the Valerie Percy thing. I see. May I ask, Mr. Hoheimer, why are you giving me this information now? My brother's no good. I want to see justice done in the Percy case. Well, listen, Wayne. I appreciate everything you've given me here. I'm thinking of going to visit your brother at the Iowa State Penitentiary next. I'm hoping he'll talk with me. He will if I'm there. I'll go with you. Sounds like a plan to me. Now, armed with two independent witness statements claiming Francis Hoheimer is Valerie's killer, Art was ready to confront the 46-year-old convict. Coming up, Leo teams up with detectives. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, 
and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In November 1973, Art Patak and Wayne Hoheimer traveled with detectives to the Iowa State Penitentiary, where Francis Hoheimer was serving his 30-year sentence on rape and robbery charges. They made their way past rows of cells to the holding room. Art and Wayne took a seat, and the detectives listened in from the other side of a one-way mirror. 46-year-old Francis then stepped through the door. His dark eyes narrowed in on Art and Wayne as he lowered himself to the seat across from them. I know why you're here. Let me save you the trouble. I didn't kill the senator's daughter, and I was never there to begin with. If you're willing to hear my side of things, I'll tell you who did. I wouldn't come all the way here if I wasn't willing, Mr. Hoheimer. Why don't you begin by telling me where you were on the morning of September 18th, uh, 1966? (laughs) I was in bed with my wife. All of a sudden, I hear this pounding on my door. I get up and it's Malchow with a couple of other guys. This is... Fred Malchow we're talking about? Yeah. He comes into my home ranting and raving, demanding some of my clothes. His were all bloody. He tells me he had to kill a girl during a job. What did you do with the bloody garments? Burned them right there in the incinerator. And I swore to myself it would be the last time I ever did a favor for Fred Malchow. I wanted him in a cell, but the guy landed head first at the bottom of a ravine. Too quick and painless, if you ask me. Pure nonsense, Francis. You told me you killed the girl the day after the murder. You're a nobody, brother. Just hoping to get your five minutes of talk time. You're full of it. Me? I'm full of it. You- Wayne? He's the liar here. Now, Francis, you said your wife was there when Malchow came to your apartment? Ex-wife now. But yeah, she was there. Ask her yourself. With so many contradicting stories, Art had no choice but to follow every lead. He began the search for Hoheimer's ex-wife, Holly, hoping she might prove to be a more impartial witness. It was no easy search, but he eventually located her by researching her children's progression through the city's public school system. By late 1973, Art sat down with Holly, By this time, the mobster's ex-wife was 34 years old. She had remarried and changed her name. She was ready to put her past behind her. She hesitated to speak with Art, but he was able to convince her to talk by promising to keep her name and location secret. He just wanted her information. Once convinced she would be safe, she told Art everything she knew. 
She said Frances Hoheimer had been casing out homes in the Kenilworth area shortly before the murder occurred. When she saw it in the papers, she wondered if her ex-husband was involved in some way. She also refuted Francis's claims that he was with her on the night of the murder and instead said he was out all night. She also denied his claim that some of his friends showed up at their house covered in blood. Art asked if she thought Francis had actually committed the murder, but she said she didn't know one way or the other. Her ex-husband was certainly capable of murder, and she thought it was possible, but she couldn't prove it if he had. Art thanked Holly for her time, but their conversation only made one thing certain. Someone was lying. Art just wasn't sure who it was. He worked with police to try and sort it all out. With so many conflicting statements, investigators were forced to go back to the physical evidence. The strongest pieces of evidence were the autopsy report and the four palm prints left behind at the scene. Investigators hoped the palm prints left in the Percy home might bring about more conclusive physical evidence. Every gang member named in the crime thus far had their prints sent to the lab for forensic comparison. Art and the detectives waited for days for the results. Sadly, much like the bayonet, testing showed no conclusive link between the palm prints of the gang members and those left behind at the crime scene. The rest of the physical evidence was scant, and it was starting to seem unlikely that investigators would have enough to bring forth any charges. By the end of 1974, Valerie's case had reached yet another stalemate. While it never led to the arrest that they were hoping for, Art's series of articles on the Percy murder earned him a Pulitzer Prize and kept Valerie's story in the public conversation. Thanks to his reporting, hope had been reinstilled that Valerie's killer might be brought to justice. Not only that, but Art's investigative work arguably fanned the flames of a new theory emerging. This one would hit much closer to home. Coming up, the killer might have been right under everyone's noses all along. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now at Top Golf, you get half off golf Monday through Wednesday when you book in the app. It could be any Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Like this Monday, next Tuesday, and the following Wednesday. Or maybe this Wednesday, next Tuesday, and the Monday after that. Basically, any Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday is a good day, as long as you spend it at Top Golf. It's golf. It's half off. It's half off golf. Monday through Wednesday when you book in the app for a limited time only. So download the Top Golf app, book a bay, and come play around. Restrictions and exclusions may apply. Visit topgolf.com slash halfoffgolf for details. Now back to the story. Residents of the wealthy community of Kenilworth, Illinois, continued to be horrified by Valerie Percy's unsolved murder for years after her death. No one would have initially thought that danger might have already been inside their suburban paradise. 
someone from within the community might have been responsible for Valerie's death. This possibility first crossed people's minds a few years after Valerie's murder. The event that brought it up took place halfway across the country, at a mansion in San Francisco. The mansion was owned by a man named William Thorson III. He didn't reside there at the time, which is why he was unaware that it was crawling with federal and local authorities. They received a tip that William had been storing something highly suspicious and later arrested him for aggravated assault and possession of illegal weapons. Look at all this. If I had to guess, there's more than 70 tons of ammunition here. What was this guy doing? That's not all. We found loads of bayonets. I haven't seen anything like this outside of a museum. Hang on. Don't the files say this guy is from... Kenilworth. He grew up there. Huh. I better contact the guys in Chicago working the Percy case. They're going to want to hear about this. It turned out this wasn't the first time Illinois authorities heard William's name in connection to Valerie's murder. In the late 1960s, William's former probation officer contacted the FBI and suggested they look into William as a suspect. We don't know why investigators never acted on this tip. The information also wasn't made public at the time. Following the raid on his mansion, authorities caught up with William in New York. They questioned him about Valerie's murder, but he refused to talk about it, or anything for that matter. It seems that from there, officers let William go. But it's hard to say for sure. He was never publicly named as a suspect in Valerie's murder. But suspicion towards him didn't end there. Years later, someone else would conduct their own investigation into Thorson's guilt. Glenn Wall grew up near the Percy home. The tragedy occurred when he was young, and it shook him to his core. As Glenn recalled in a book he published in 2013... Valerie's murder was the first time he had ever really contemplated death. The fact that it happened in his own neighborhood added to the trauma. As he grew older, Glenn's fascination with the case led him to dedicating years trying to solve the mystery, and his suspicion was set on William Thorson. To understand Glenn's theory, we have to go back in time. The Thorsons live just a block and a half from the Percy's estate. Like Valerie, William's father was a businessman. But unlike Valerie, William's childhood appeared to be far from perfect. By the time he was 13, his parents were reportedly concerned there was something deeply wrong with their eldest child. William didn't seem to have a kind or empathetic bone in his body. Over the next several years, William was committed to a number of mental health facilities and various boarding schools. Wherever he went, he gained a reputation for violence. Some of his preferred activities were apparently smashing cars and preying on young women. By the time he was 21, if William wasn't in a facility, he'd go home to his parents in Kenilworth. However, they preferred he be in a facility or at least not with them. 
By the fall of 1966, around the time of Valerie's murder, 28-year-old William found a way to avoid being sent to another mental health facility. He got married in 1960. His wife's name was Louise. They met on a date through a setup two years earlier. Looking back, it's clear that Louise wasn't just a life partner to William. For a time, she became his partner in crime. She would later recall, quote, He made my life exciting, and he needed me. William's criminal behavior never ceased. He was in and out of jail his entire adult life. In addition, Louise sometimes provided false alibis for him. At least once, she even allowed herself to be arrested in his place. In exchange, she enjoyed all the privileges his family money had to offer, including multiple homes across the country. However, William's parents tried to cut him off. They thought this might quell his compulsive behavior, but William had a solution for this. According to Louise, he broke into his parents' Kenilworth home and stole more than half a million dollars. After his parents threatened to press larceny charges, he returned the money. Afterward, his parents shunned him. So, he turned to his younger brother for help. Listen... I don't have a lot of time, little man, but I was hoping you might be able to help me. Sure. What is it? See, I got a notice the other day that Mom and Dad cut me out of their will. It's their messed up way of trying to control me, to get me crawling back to Kenilworth. I know it's a lot to ask, but I was hoping you might list me as the sole heir in your will, just to show them I'm still family, you know? Uh, I don't know the first thing about this stuff. I'd list you as mine, too, obviously. Brothers have to stick together. What do you say? Okay. Let me see what I can do. William's brother managed to revise the paperwork in William's favor. Shortly after it was finalized, William's brother was found dead in a parked car and investigators never determined if it was suicide or murder. But Louise would claim to others at the time that William had hired a hitman to kill his brother. William and Louise may have found other ways to rake in cash. He had amassed such a large amount of weaponry, some feared he was engaged in nationwide arms dealing. This resulted in the raid on his San Francisco mansion, which, as we know, led to him being charged with aggravated assault and possession of illegal weapons in 1967. But sometime after the raid, William's cruelty caught up to him in other ways. Louise later revealed that William had abused her throughout their marriage. He often beat her and once even attacked her with a razor blade. For years, she'd thought about leaving him, but his apologies always convinced her to stay in their relationship. However, in June 1970, an especially violent argument brought the pair to the point of no return. You think I won't finish you off? I'd do it, and I'd enjoy it! Please, don't shoot! Maybe Mommy and Daddy will appreciate me when I become a widower! Please don't do this. Put the gun down. Goodbye, Louise. Louise lunged. She wrestled the gun from William, 
and shot him. William was dead. Louise didn't have to play his games anymore. A jury later acquitted her on the basis of self-defense. William's legacy didn't end there. Glenn Wall believed there were several uncanny connections between William and the Percy case. In 2014, he published his book titled Sympathy Vote, a reinvestigation of the Valerie Percy murder, laying all these connections out. To start, he and other researchers note accounts that William had regularly visited Kenilworth in the 1960s. It's possible that during one of these visits, he developed a dark fascination with the bright and beautiful Valerie. The brutal nature of her murder certainly suggests a level of sadism. Finally, the bayonets found in William's San Francisco mansion serve a striking resemblance to the Percy case. As investigators noted when they found the bayonet in the lake, it's an unusual weapon of choice, and William owned many. As compelling as Glenn's argument may be, it's all circumstantial. Nothing solid has ever surfaced, and to this day, the murder of Valerie Percy remains an active and ongoing investigation. Many people continue to demand answers. In 2014, following news coverage around the release of Glenn's book, FBI files related to the case were obtained by ABC7, Chicago's ABC News affiliate. The files revealed the tip in the late 1960s that authorities received on William. They also received an official statement from the police saying, quote, William was never cleared from involvement in the Percy case, and his possible involvement is considered undetermined. As recently as 2019, one attorney tried to access records on Valerie Percy's case through a Freedom of Information Act request. Courts have denied this motion, siding with the authorities that the release of sensitive information could harm the ongoing investigation. As for the Percy's, Valerie's father, Chuck, went on to serve 18 years in the U.S. Senate. He lived out the rest of his life alongside Lorraine in their new home of Washington, D.C., until he died on September 17, 2011, just one day before the 45th anniversary of Valerie's murder. While over 55 years have passed since that tragic day, hope still remains that Valerie Percy and her family might see justice yet. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, Freddie Rivera, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Ellie Margolis, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Lori Siegel, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Drew Lawn, Joe Hernandez, and Charlie Wess. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 